Easter Sunday morning. One of the reasons that's extraordinary is because according to the Quran very clearly, Jesus Christ didn't die. If you don't die, you don't get resurrected. Uh, that's, uh, I can show you the rest of that uh, afterwards if you like. But Muhammad Ali still wanted to be outside the tomb of Jesus to see what happened. From the pugilist to the philosopher, there was a man called Professor C.E.M. Joe who was a professor of philosophy at London University. And he was asked by one of those sort of TV interviews if he could ask one question of any one person in history, who would it be and what would the question be? And he didn't pause for a moment. He said, I would like to meet Jesus Christ and ask him the most important question in all the world. And this isn't some hyped up, uneducated preacher man speaking here. This is, this is a very profoundly thoughtful non-Christian who at this point said, I would like to ask him the most important question in all the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? Why is it such an important question? To ask Jesus Christ, did you or did you not rise from the dead? Both the boxer and the British philosopher both understand its extraordinary importance. I wonder if you've ever put your God-given mind to that question to work out whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or not. Let me suggest to you two brief reasons why this is a very, very important question, perhaps, as the man says, the most important question in all the world. First, it's important because it would deal with the, the universally most oppressive problem human beings have. It is so oppressive and so frightening that in our culture, at least, we learn not to think about it. You'll heard the hackneyed old saying that the Nile ain't just a river that flows through Egypt. We regularly deny and forget things that are painful to us for any number of reasons. In our culture, children ask questions about death, but those of us who are older than them teach them to be fools and teach them not to ask the one unavoidable question, which is the question of death. We do that because basically we don't have an answer to it. We just know that all of us are on a short journey from birth to death, from womb to tomb. That's it. And some would say all you are doing is you're like people on the, on the Titanic, filling in the time between those two fixed events. But if Jesus rose from the dead, there is someone who seems to have even more power than death. We're not talking here about a close escape like Kerry had. Not a close escape, as some of you may have had, where if at a time you stopped breathing and you could have been called clinically dead. You weren't biologically dead, but you were clinically... Not that, but a man whose body was literally torn to pieces and then put in a cave and a couple of days later comes back. There's no doubt that Jesus Christ was dead and yet there are serious claims and serious evidence to indicate that he beat it. He defeated it. There may be an answer to the one unescapable, universal, fairly depressing problem of death. Secondly, the other reason why it might be the most important question in all the world is that the, the truthfulness or the deceitfulness of Jesus Christ himself hangs on this event. Whether or not Christianity is fundamentally a pack of lies or fundamentally wonderfully true, life-transformingly true, hangs on the question of whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. This, I think it's fair to say, this is one of the number of areas where Christianity is totally different to all the other great religions of the world. 
that there is one particular event that Jesus asks you to address your mind and attention to and if it happens you know it's true. It's not just a thing of resonating with some ideas that, that the Buddha might teach or feeling the strength of the ideas that Muhammad the Prophet might teach or whatever else. It's actually a place where you can use your God-given brain to work out, did this or did this not happen? Because Jesus says twice in the Gospel, once in John 2 and once in Matthew 12, he answers the question, give us proof that you really are who you claim to be. You're making monstrous claims, both by your actions and your deeds. Give us proof. Both times, in John 2 and Matthew 12, he speaks of his body being torn apart, being placed in the ground and raising, being raised to new life. Jesus hangs his own credibility, not on whether or not your heart resonates with his truth, whether or not it meets some psychological need or not, but on a particular event that he keeps saying he will, he will be involved in, that he will go up to Jerusalem, he'll be crucified, and on the third day he'll rise again. And the early Christians understood this. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, which may well be the earliest bit of Christian writing that we have, from within a couple of decades of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul who writes that says that if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are liars about God, because we testify that he did, and your faith is worthless, and we are all men on the earth and most to be pitied. So the early Christians believed what Jesus said, which is the mark of a Christian, that we take what Jesus says seriously. And they understood no resurrection, no forgiveness, nothing except stupidity and illusion. Well, let's have a look at what did happen. And why did the early Christians believe what was just as ridiculous then as it is now? They didn't have the wonders of modern medicine that Kerry could have his heart attack and you can get those things and go zip and flat on it and bang and up he comes. And thankfully, thanks to Kerry, he used his pocket money from that week to put those things in all the emergency ambulances in Sydney, which is very good of him. They didn't have modern medicine. They didn't have all sorts of trickery that we have, thank God. They knew that when you're dead, you're dead. And you're a long time dead. They understood that. And watch the early accounts of Christianity heading out to the world into the Greek culture. When they preach about the resurrection of Jesus, they get mocked. If you're going to shape the message to make it more persuasive, more acceptable, the resurrection from the dead has to go. So read in Acts 17 when one of the apostles gets to Athens, that great centre of learning. And they're listening happily as he talks about God the Creator. When he gets to the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, they laugh. They mock him. at what utter stupidity. As if anybody would want to be raised from the dead. They wanted to be set free from their body, which is a prison for the soul. Resurrection from the dead is a nonsense. It was not attractive, it was not believable then. One of the apostles, when he preached it about the resurrection of Jesus, the guy who was listening to him said, your great learning has driven you mad. Of course dead people... None of this sort of chronological snobbery that says, oh, those simpletons back there, they'd believe anything. Not at all. They knew, like humans around the planet know, that when you're well and truly dead, as Jesus was, you stay dead. So why did they believe what seems obviously nonsense? And why did they believe it with such intensity that 10 out of the 12 of the central group of disciples scattered across the world, didn't stay together in one secure group, 10 out of the 12 of them were put to death for it? 
Now, if you have any doubt about something, it becomes a question of if you maintain that line, you die, and many of them die painfully, like the Apostle Peter who was put to death, crucified upside down. Bad enough to be crucified right way up. And now the, Thomas put to death quite painfully in India where he went after the accounts we're going to read in a minute. Now, these guys really, you know, they had plenty of chance to work out if this was true or not. What convinced them? Well, let's have a look. We're going to look at John 20. If you want to have a look at the blue thing, you're welcome just to listen. We will skip over parts of it so that we can finish at an appropriate time. I'm aware this is lunch and many of you have been working very hard. Frankly, I'm impressed that people come to lunchtime gatherings. They've been working hard. Hey, let's come to lunchtime meeting. Keep thinking. Well done. And look, three things briefly. One, that seeing is vital. Two, that seeing is not essential. And three, then what is essential and vital? Seeing is vital, number one. Uh, you may have met people, uh, and if you're one of these people, I want to say this as gently as I can, you may have met people who say, I only believe in what I see. Uh, when you meet someone like that, be kind to them. They don't really believe it, they just haven't thought enough. Particularly if they said those words to you. Because they probably believe in sound. And uh, we may do all sorts of funny things with sound when you run through electrical machinery, but you don't see sound. Sight is a very powerful, very wonderful, a very limited window into reality. So when someone says to you, I only believe in what I see, they don't. They're talking nonsense. Unless they don't believe in music and they don't believe in sight, uh, sorry, they don't believe in um, scent, is what I'm thinking of saying. Oh, I don't believe there's no point buying perfumes. I can't see what it does with absolutely yellow water. 90 bucks for a small bottle of yellow water? What a, what a goose does that? But of course, if you get a nice little bottle of $90 water, there's another way to pick up some parts of reality which Or the classic debate that was had in a classroom once where a professor was mocking Christians for believing in the invisible God and they asked, they asked a series of questions. So, Professor, we only believe what we can see. Is that right? Yes, we only believe what we can see. He said, well, and he said, I'm not sure if you've got a brain. Can't see it. Can we just check that you've got a brain before I waste any more time talking to you? Because if we can't see it. Now, of course, you say, no, but there's other ways. Absolutely. There are other ways to get windows into reality. Sight is a wonderful one. The eye is freakishly, accidentally um, looking as if it was designed. But, you know. but sight is wonderful. Sight is important. But it's, to say you only believe what you see is a half truth dressed up as the whole truth which normally means it becomes a lie. I didn't see myself getting born out of my mother, but I have no reason to believe it. No, that's not true. I have no reason to doubt it. In fact, some would argue that most of the stuff that you believe and build your life on, you didn't see any evidence for it. There are other ways. But interestingly enough, in John chapter 20, sight is very, very important. In fact, it's vital. It's life-giving. So the words for seeing or beholding or looking are in verse 1, 5, 6, 8, 11, 14, 18, 20, 25, 27 and 29. It's the major word that goes through this passage, the question of seeing or not seeing. So let's, let's have a bit of a quick look at this. How did people begin to believe in this self-evidently difficult to believe business about Jesus? Torn to, torn to pieces on Friday, yet alive on the Sunday. Well, let's look firstly at Mary. Um, this gospel speaks only of Mary on her own coming to the tomb. Some people say, aha, see another Bible contradiction. Because Mark and the others speak about Mary and a few others. 
Now, it's actually marked in the Bible straightforward honesty, because if they'd got together and colluded, which is what you do if you were telling a lie, got together, they'd make sure they had everything nice and neat and easy. But of course, I can say to you, I went to Blackheath last week, and you say, aha, you're a liar. Uh, Michelle, Rose, Ellie, and you went. Yeah, 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 right. Still tell the story, just one, one focus if I'm interested in that particular person. That's what John's doing. He simply wants you to focus on Mary. Something about Mary that he wants you to notice. Verse 1. She heads off, you can look there, she heads off while it's uh, still dark. Mary heads off to the tomb and what does she see? She saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. The stone was the door that was rolled into place to keep the grave safe. She saw the stone had been removed. She knew something bad had happened. I once came around the front of my house and I saw our front door flapping open when we'd been away for a week. I knew we'd been robbed. You know, if the, if the door has been opened and it oughtn't to be, it's a bad sign. Mary sees that the stone has been rolled away. So she goes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. So she sees the stone moved away. As far as we know, she didn't look in. But she can put one and one together. Those mongrels who murdered him have now desecrated his grave and stolen his body, so we can't even honour him in the tomb. She knows that a missing body does not equal a resurrection. She knows what's happened. Or she thinks she knows. Those filthy rats have stolen the body. That's what she says. says She says it three times in this passage. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. They have. The bad guys have. Well, how does she go from that position of thinking that something horrible has happened to believing, as she does later, that he has risen? Just flip down to verse 14. She sees these angels. They're just as angels often are, just ordinary looking humans. A woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said. I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, she knows what's happened. Someone's nicked the body. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turns toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Actually, literally says, cease holding on to me. So she's obviously fallen before him and holding on to his feet. Cease holding on to me. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary sees Jesus. She doesn't recognise him at first. This is one of what some people call the embarrassment factor. One of the things that indicates the truthfulness of the accounts is that a number of the Gospels have embarrassing facts in them. Here and in Luke, there are mentions of times when people see Jesus but don't recognise him first off, which means some idiots, you shouldn't say that, some people that I respectfully disagree with have actually written PhDs arguing it was actually Jesus' identical twin, separated at birth, who turned up in Jerusalem accidentally, unbeknownst to the disciples, on the same day as Jesus was put to death on the same weekend and he just fitted in took the job. So he had his hair done a bit differently probably and maybe had a slightly different accent and that's why people were confused. I'd like to see the scars in his hand. 
Anyhow, that's it. Some people will believe anything. But actually, it's quite easy to see what's happening. We know that she gets there in the dark. It may still be dark. She's, she's not looking for Jesus. She's weeping. She is shattered. And if you know what it is to be shattered, you don't pay attention to the face of someone who you don't know. I, I mentioned the other week at church that I sat next to my brother on a train for two stations without even realising it was him. <laughs> and we went separated at birth, like apparently Jesus was in his twins. I'm just on the train at North Sydney, I'm going to a meeting, I'm looking at some papers, I'm waiting for the train, he's there, I noticed him there in a very classy suit. We sit down beside each other, so we didn't actually look at each other, and it was only when we moved along as more people got on at Milson's point that we recognised, I said, oh hello, my name's Ian Powell, he said, oh, my name's Ross Powell. Oh, yeah. and, and you can you can do that when you're old and stupid or if you are very, very traumatised and upset but it doesn't help the story I would have left that detail out it puts a little gap that people who are a little dishonest and are looking for an escape can drive through but they tell you Mary didn't realise it was him and it was actually his voice that gave him away and she heard the way that uh, he called her name but she goes back and says to the disciples I've seen him why does she believe he's alive? She saw him with her own eyes. She doesn't mention touching him because sight seems to be the key thing. Let's move on to the disciples themselves. Earlier on in this uh, passage, when Mary goes back, two of them, Peter and John, do the bolt to the tomb. It's the obvious thing to do if you're mildly fit. They hear that the tomb is empty, someone's nicked it. They go, they run. John is apparently quicker. He gets there first. He looks in, he peeps in, is the word. Has a look, he won't go in because. Jews have got this thing still about going into places with dead bones. It, it defiles you, makes you unable to do a number of religious activities. So he's reluctant to go in. Peter, headstrong and determined, straight in when he catches up. They go back, realising that the body's gone and strangely the wrappings around the body are still there. Because if you're stealing a body, can I suggest to you, if, you're, if you do take up uh, stealing bodies, what probably good not to do is if you want to nick them, is to unwrap them so that you can have the sort of slippery, bloody, decomposing sort of flesh. It's probably easier if they're wrapped in a towel and a sheet to leave them there. Um, but they notice that it's just there still, as if Jesus has sort of come through it in some odd way. But they're not, they're not convinced he's risen. They just are perplexed. How do they get convinced? Well, Mary's word is not enough. We know that in Luke 24, it says of these sexist pigs that when, the, when uh, Mary came with some of the other women, told them what had happened. They, the men said, it seems to them as idle nonsense, old wives tales, silly, traumatised, emotional women. Uh, just, you know, take a mob it on and get over it. But uh, they didn't believe it. What convinces them? Uh, have a look at verse uh, 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Shalom. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas called Didymus, which means twin, uh, Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples came and told him, We've seen the Lord. This is a chorus that goes through. Mary says, I've seen the Lord. Now the disciples say, we've seen the Lord. Now Jesus walks up to them and shows them his hands and his feet. This is important. 
Jesus actually is giving them stuff to convince them who he is. The twin you see has got out a knife and hacked away and uh, rapidly healed. No, I don't think so. Jesus comes and shows them his hands, shows them his feet, shows them the, the side where the spear was shoved as an act of hatred at the end of his life. He wants them to have what they need to believe. He knows how hard it is to believe that a truly dead person has come back. So he gives them what I think we would best call evidence. He shows them what they need so that they'll know it's him. It's not a ghost. It's not a hallucination. It's him. They're invited even to touch. So the disciples believe for exactly the same reason Mary did. They saw. Let's look at Thomas, famous for not uh, believing, which is a bit unfair, I think, on the poor old guy, but a great character. Uh, we pick up bits and pieces of Thomas in the three Gospels. He's a determined, he's a bit of a melancholic sort of guy. So if you're that way inclined, Thomas might be your uh, patron saint or role model. Anyhow, Thomas is not there for whatever reason. He's gone shopping or something. The disciples come and say, we've seen the Lord. And because he's a Christian, a man of little brain, he goes, oh, of course, yeah, 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 okay, you've seen him. Well done, boys. So, fantastic, he's risen. No. Look at what he says. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. This guy's just like you, isn't he? A couple of your friends who are already traumatised start talking about seeing someone who's thoroughly dead walking around alive again. You're unlikely to go, ah, sure. It's safe on the first. He should us fall around then. Now, you know, this is rubbish. Pull the other leg, it plays jingle bells. And I don't expect he ever thinks this is going to happen. This grotesque picture of sticking your finger in the, in the wound, shoving your hand up with the spear went. It's a grotesque picture, but that's what Thomas is saying. I think it's like you say, you know, you know, South Sydney win the premiership this year, I'll crawl all the way to lift on my hands and knees. See, I can say that because I know, even though I'm a believer, it ain't going to happen. Those of you who are South supporters, see me after this counselling. You can get over this sort of grief sometimes with uh, fellowship more easily. But, but if you say, I'll, you know, I'll crawl on my hands and knees across broken glass or I'll eat my hat, it's just an extreme way of saying, rubbish. Thomas doesn't believe it, he knows it isn't true. And then it's kind of spooky. A week later, Jesus keeps him waiting for a while. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he goes up to Thomas. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Again, I want to draw your attention. It's wonderful how Jesus works, isn't it? He doesn't say, well, my father and I designed this terrific brain for you, but we don't want you to use it in the most important part of life. We'd very much rather you didn't use your God-given brain. In fact, we don't even know why we gave it to you. He basically is appealing to Thomas to, to look and to think and to consider and to respond to reality. Stick your finger in here. I was looking at that Caravaggio. That's how you say his name, painting. It's got this, you've got Thomas actually sticking his finger in. Now, thankfully, in the Gospels, it doesn't look as if he does that. It doesn't look as if he uh, takes the opportunity. He knows he's dealing with a real person and he is on his knees. Why does Thomas believe? Thomas believes for the same reason the disciples believe, for the same reason Mary believes, because he saw him. 
It's vital. It's life-giving. That's where Christianity starts. People at a certain point in history, at a certain place in history, which is the way real history works, saw something and witnessed it and testified to it. The only disciple who came to faith without seeing the resurrection of Jesus was John, who in verse 8 seems to have put it together simply by seeing the grave clothes he saw and believed. But nonetheless, it's what he saw that convinced him. But the basic way is through seeing. Well, seeing is vital, but seeing is not essential. Because look at what Jesus says to Thomas. Thomas responds to him, and we'll come back to this, with this extraordinary statement. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. How blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's something very lovely here because Jesus expects the disciples to see and believe. That's how he set it up. But it's kind of as he looks at Thomas, he kind of looks down through history and sees millions and millions of others who simply will be living at the wrong time in the wrong place. This is how real history works. And you just don't get a chance to see. As is true for most of us with just about every important event that's happened in human history. We weren't there. Wrong place, wrong time. And Jesus sees, down through history, almost in my, in my eyes here, you almost see all the way down to this beautiful exam room. And he says, it's great that you believe, Thomas, because you see, but how, how blessed, how enviable, how supreme, supremely enriched are those who don't get to see and yet believe, yet trust him. How do we do that? Well, in John 17... Jesus has prayed for the disciples in that wonderful prayer that he prayed before his execution. He prays for his disciples and then in verse 20 he changes tack. He says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, speaking of the boy, John, Peter and all the guys, but for those who believe in me through their word. He understands that most people won't get the same risen from the dead. He's not going to fly around like some sort of spiritual thing disappearing here and here. That's not how it works. He's working in real time and real history. But Jesus said, people will believe me through their word. The reason why I believe that my mother is my mother, because of the word of my father and my mother, and some who were close. Most of what you believe is because people who you trust have told you. And in the end, these witnesses spoke and many came to believe. And Jesus has already prayed for you, as he does in John 17 for those who will not see but will believe through the word of the eyewitnesses. That's how it is that uh, people can come to believe without seeing. It doesn't seem as uh, exciting, does it? It doesn't seem... I mean, I, I think I'd rather be there. Although the longer I've been living around the Gospels and reading them, I think to be around Jesus uh, would have been a very disturbing thing. There was just no parallel for it. There was no uh, way that you could prepare for God becoming one of us. That was unforeseen, unimaginable, almost a blasphemous thought. Uh, perhaps it is more blessed to believe without having been there. Uh, history is full of, and I know about five or six different examples of uh, quite high, um, high and eminent people in their fields who have set out to disprove the resurrection and when they've put time and effort into looking at the evidence, have in the end written books arguing for the resurrection. It's easy to laugh at the resurrection if you're a coward and won't spend time looking at it. 
What's really scary is when you begin to look at the evidence. Uh, two very impressive young men met at Oxford University, Gilbert West and a man called Lord Littleton. They met and decided that they would write some books, one book each, that would finally demolish Christianity. Gilbert West was going to write a book demolishing the resurrection and Lord Littleton was going to write a book demolishing the nonsense about the Apostle Paul having been a persecuting Pharisee who became a very keen Christian. So they spent their long vacation in some of the great universities of Europe gathering the evidence. They met, I think it was in Paris, and uh, Gilbert West speaks of the very embarrassing, awkward conversation they had until they both revealed that they had both become Christian. Right? As they began to look at the evidence. And in the end, West wrote a long book called Observations on the History and Evidences for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the fly page, he said, he quotes from this uh, odd book, but the quote's good, blame not before thou hast examined the evidence. This is what he'd done. Don't blame, don't mock till you've spent time examining it. An interesting character is a man called um, Professor Simon Greenleaf. There's a quote by him on the back, which you can read at your leisure. Uh, he was a Harvard professor, has, had written a book that was the classic book in the American legal system on how to, how to sift through evidence, what evidence was good, what evidence was bad. Uh, Simon Greenleaf was a Jewish man, not particularly religious, and he used to have friendly, friendly um, goes at the Christian students he had. It was friendly and respectful and they liked him. And he was a genius. And then a couple of the Christian students waited back before their long vacation, I don't know when that is in America, and he waited back at the end and Greenleaf told the story. He said what happened was that they, they waited and they said, uh, Professor, we've got a challenge for you. And he said, well, what is it? He said, we challenge you over this long break to use exactly the same principles as you've taught us to ascertain the quality of witnesses and the reliability of evidence, exactly the same procedures and methods applied to the question of the resurrection of Jesus and tell us what your results are. Greenleaf writes the book and there's a quote from him on the back of that blue sheet where he comes back having come to the conclusion Jesus Christ was dead and truly rose from the dead. The bottom quote in the blue sheet, I think, is one of the more interesting ones uh, by a man called Pinkas Lepide. Uh, Lepide wrote a book about 25 years ago. Now, it's recently just come back into print. It's a short book. He's an Orthodox rabbi. I mention this because I want you to know he's not sort of brought up in a Christian home desperately trying to prove his household faith. He's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. He's a professor of history, or was, at the Hebrew University. And he wrote a book on the resurrection of Jesus where he came out very clearly saying it happened. He really did rise from the dead. And in another book, uh, quoted there, he says, I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as an historical event. Again, won't get convinced until you use your God-given mind and your ears and your thinking and listen to the witnesses, those who saw, those who testified, to work out if they're truthful men and women or liars. If liars, evil. If liars, ridiculously Because they lived as poor people and many of them were persecuted and murdered. So, seeing is vital, but it is not essential. What is essential is given to us in the next couple of verses. If you look at me at the bottom of that sheet, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. John's just letting you know he didn't write down everything. It's not an exhaustive history. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is essential? What is essential is not seen. What is essential is to get a grip on or to let the truth get a grip on you. And the reason why the early Christians wrote things down was it was the safest and most secure way to store testimony. It probably still is to write things down, to turn their words into written things that will last. And what you have when you read John's Gospel is the account of John the eyewitness. What you have when you read Luke is what Luke says. He was not an eyewitness. He could have lied if he wanted to, but Luke says he was not an eyewitness. He went and spoke to the eyewitnesses and wrote an ordered account. They're very upfront about what they're doing. And John says, what is essential though is that you believe. Now again, we've got a problem with the word believe because for the last hundred or so years, people think believe is the opposite of knowing something. It is the opposite of thoughtfulness. It is the opposite of fact. It is the opposite of evidence. There's believing and science. That's nonsense. It's all sorts of things you need to believe to actually work within the scientific system. Believing, in the way that the Bible uses it, is a question of trust. And frankly, if you trust people without evidence, you're going to get more hurt than you need to. You should trust people if they are trustworthy. You should trust Jesus Christ if he is trustworthy. If he is not worthy of your trust, then for crying out loud, don't trust him. Be careful who you trust. What we're told here is that these things are written down so that those who were unable to be there and see it can know the truth and believe it. This is what is essential. Not seeing. Seeing is vital to get it started. What is essential is in the end that you place your trust where it belongs. Like Thomas. See, Thomas is unfairly called Thomas the Doubter. He's a great guy. He's just an honest sceptic. You ought to disbelieve claims about miracles until there's good proof. Jesus is very clear on don't believe everything you hear, particularly in the air of religion. Thomas didn't believe his friends, but he was not closed-minded. When the evidence presented itself, he changed his mind. And as we know, he went off to India and founded a church in India, right, uh, which uh, when the missionaries arrived there, 1,400 years later from Portugal, they were amazed to find there were already Christians there long, long, long before then and that Thomas had taken the gospel to them. Thomas, when he sees the evidence in front of him, Jesus falls down, as I mentioned, and makes the most extraordinary statement that is either appalling blasphemy or is a great moment of insight, where he looks at Jesus, who's clearly a man, and says, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I... Those of you who, who may know more about Islam from the inside than I do may want to argue with me afterwards. I think if you said that to Muhammad, you may well be put to death for blasphemy. It's an unthinkable thing to say to a human being. A mortal. The definition of a mortal is that there's someone who dies. That's why we're called mortals. We are those who die. There's wisdom in that man. To say to another human being, my Lord and my God, this man's Jewish, Thomas. He knows the difference between the creation and the creator. Yet nonetheless, he looks at this person in front of him and says, you are my God. The Jehovah's Witnesses, who are set up partly on the belief that Jesus is not God, 
What do they do with this? I'll tell you what the last JWI spoke to does with this. They say, Thomas was so surprised, he went, my Lord and my God! As if he's a pagan, stupid, mindless Australian who will use the name of the Great One as a swear word interchangeably with what floats around in toilets. Right? I mean, talk about a desperate attempt to, to avoid the obvious. My Lord and my God, he says. And if, if he's wrong, Jesus, if he's any sort of a teacher, prophet, should say, Thomas, don't do that. Get up. Worship God only. But Jesus actually doesn't do that at all. He just says, well, you've come to believe that by seeing. How blessed are those who come to believe that without seeing? Jesus is so much more than a mortal. And we see this working its way through John's Gospel. The first verse tells you that this one was with God and is God. He becomes a human being and then it bubbles along to trying to make sense of this guy. Every now and then people say, hey, my God, the only person who can forgive sins is God. Who do you think you are, you blasphemer? The way he treats the Sabbath. Again and again, they, a couple of times they try to kill him for blasphemy, for making him out of God. But Thomas finally gets it, having seen all that fun. That's it. You really are God's one amongst us. In such great love that the God who is great beyond understanding stoops down in loving kindness and humility so that he can die for you and deal with your sin and, and cleanse you and bring you back to God and then rise again to defeat death. And this verse speaks about believing that he is the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. And the whole Gospel speaks of believing into Jesus, trusting him, that you may have life eternal. This is Jesus. This is who Christ really is, risen from the dead. We need to believe what he's done, and by seeing what he's done, we can know who he is, that he is actually God amongst us, and therefore to treat him appropriately. You mock him, if you just call him immortal. You degrade him if you just say he's the second greatest of the prophets. You don't understand him if that's who you think he is. And friends, I think for many of us, with the brains you've been given and the opportunities in our country, to live with that respectful contempt of Jesus is dangerous. Because God knows your position. He knows your opportunity to know better. Whatever trouble it may cause for you if you finally face the fact that Christ rose from the dead and that he is both Lord and God, the trouble of mocking God, the trouble with degrading his son, will be infinitely greater. I spoke with a bloke the other day who works in the financial sector in Sydney and he's moving slowly towards the view that Jesus may be actually the Son of God. And he said, if I become a Christian, he said, I will be socially crucified. He said, my wife is frightened what's going to happen in his marriage. But he understands he's got to go with the truth to And I wonder if there are some of us who actually know in our heart of hearts and in our brain that Jesus is so much more than a mortal. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is God come amongst us. Shocking as that is, but wonderful if it's true. And yet may not yet have bowed the mind and the knee to him. And friends, I've only got a few more seconds. There's so much stuff I'd like to go through with you. But um, if you're in that position where you're yet simply to be a person who, like Thomas says, gee, I didn't know that, now I do. I want to urge you to be a person of integrity and courage and put your faith where it belongs in the one who has died for you and the one who has conquered death 
and who loves to forgive and to share his victory and to share his joy with you. The joy of confidence as you face judgment and confidence as you face death and a purpose he will share with you in your life here and now. So again we're going to do what we've done in the past and I just give you a moment to pray. Then this time you can feel not only have you been listening to my words but the Holy Spirit has been working on you trying to convince you, to point you to Jesus. And it may be a time for you to think, so Jesus, like Thomas, I now see who you are. And like Thomas, I'm going to bow before you and treat you as both Lord and God. So while we have a moment, you can ask him for forgiveness and turn your life over to him where it belongs and begin to act out our trust in him. Let's have a moment of just silence or you might like to pray. And then I'll pray. Loving Father, you are great beyond our highest thoughts. And that your Son should come and live amongst us in order to reveal your heart and your mind and your purposes, and in order to die for us, to deal with our sin, to offer us this wonderful forgiveness and new life. Seems almost too good to be true, but Father, thank you that it is true, and that you've given ample evidence to show it in your Son. Lord, we pray that you would make us men and women who are courageous and willing to follow the truth wherever it goes. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've said that it is your word that reveals truth and that the truth alone sets us free. So Lord, help us to find our joy in living under your truth and drawing near to you and getting to know you and learning to live with you both now and into the forever. Uh, Thanks for this in Jesus' name. Friends, I know... um, I've pushed you and thank you so much for paying so careful attention. It's been hard work. And I just said two last things and that is um, up the back on the right hand side of the two main doors there's uh, articles. It's about five or six pages which will just help you go through some more of the evidence for the resurrection. If you've never read something like this can I urge you to take it. It's free. It's written by a Sydney cited Dr John Dixon. It's very well worth reading his uh, PhD within ancient history so he knows his stuff. You might like to grab one of those. And secondly, the card, if you might like to take this up. We'd really love to hear from you. Uh, whether or not you came and you've, the one thing you've decided is you're never coming to another EU meeting ever again in your life, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, please abuse us. Uh, please let us know how you found it. On the other hand, though, you might think, I really, I really need to check this out more. I need to get some help to do that. We would love to help. We don't want to pester you. We don't want your money. But this, this card will be helpful. And I'm going to ask, perhaps if you could, if you don't mind, if everyone could just jot something on this. As I've mentioned the last few days, it gives the person next to you space to write if they want to, if you're not perving over their shoulder. And there's a number of boxes down the bottom you might like to tick. Perhaps email and name might be the easiest way. There's a bit of privacy, perhaps an email. You might be frightened about these religious people getting too close to you. Um, but you might want to say, I found the talk interesting, yes, yes. You might want to think, I'm interested in finding out more about Jesus. I need to know more. I want to be like Thomas, an honest doubter who's willing to look at the evidence. I'd like to do a short course that explains Christianity. It's a brilliant short course worked out by the EU here, which would really help you get a bit of an understanding about what Jesus is on about. You might like to think that. I'd like to become a Christian. There'll be some of you who think, yeah, I need to become a Christian. Perhaps you prayed the prayer, but you're not quite sure you know, whether it's stuck or what. Do let us know so we can get your help.
I found the first few months of being Christian the hardest months of my life, uh, but worth going through. We'd like to give you some help. So just tick if one of those boxes if that would be helpful. Give us a comment on how you found the meetings, uh, whatever, and then uh, some way of contacting a name or address. And then perhaps if you could just drop it in the green buckets at the back, the tasteful green buckets that will be being waved around by our hosts and hostesses. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much, Ian. Uh, that brings us to a close of uh, the formal part of this meeting. Uh, can I just remind you uh, to drop your cards in the buckets on the way out? There will be an afternoon tea served now, uh, just down uh, the back of the hall there. So if you have time, please join us. Uh, it's been great spending this time. Thanks.